RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Insurance is the missing piece in getting more renewables built. And we think that data is the key. Climate change is the defining challenge of this generation. And the resulting growth in renewables creates a once in a generation opportunity to grow an entirely new class of premiums that you know, we, we believe to be called climate insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Richard Matsui and we are going to discuss climate insurance particularly the insurance of solar farms and other renewable energy sources. Richard has a globetrotting CV, starting with his school days in Hawaii and followed by university in Taiwan and Washington DC, followed by a year in Beijing with the US Foreign Commercial Service. After that, it was back to Taiwan for three years with the management consultants McKinsey's, where Richard was a founding member of their global solar practice. In 2010, he returned to Hawaii And in 2012, he co-founded KWH Analytics, which is the custodian of the world's largest database of renewable energy asset performance, from which it was a short step into climate insurance, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Peter. First time caller, long time listener. And uh, thank you so much for joining us as well from Hawaii. First thing in the morning for you and last thing at night for us. So thank you so much for that. Um, and I have to say that is quite some CV, Richard. Let's start with your interest in, in solar and renewable energy generally. When and why and how did that start? Thank you for the kind introduction, Peter. I'd say that my entire career has been in renewable. Uh, for better or for worse, this is all I know. I did help start McKinsey's solar practice back in 2007, which 15 years is not a long time in most industries, but in a new growth industry like renewables, this does make me surprisingly ancient, so to speak. Brilliant. And today's episode is going to be an interesting one because it's going to be about two different things. There's sort of two themes that are going to be coming through it. The first one is how data can drive innovative insurance products. But the second one is how those innovative insurance products can positively aid the transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. Yep, listeners, that's right. This is one of those how insurance can save the world episodes. But before we discuss either data or insurance, though, could you, I guess, introduce us to the, the solar industry and explain why it is so important at this time? Absolutely. And, it, and I think about this question is two layers. So first, this macro layer that we're all aware of, which is how renewable fits into a larger climate story. And then second, of course, is how does insurance fit within this renewable trend? And so looking at this macro picture at this point, I think we're all aware of the the IPCC reports, the UN reports, to describe that climate change is here, climate change is real. And we're seeing it in social media. We see the the floods in Europe. We see uh, displacement of island populations. And when you look at the numbers, the energy sector is accountable for 75% of carbon emissions today. So it doesn't take much imagination to see that, look, if we are serious about this problem, if we really intend to hit net zero by 2050, we as a globe need to install solar and wind at a rate of four times like the highest rate that we've ever installed it at. And we need to do that. So for solar, if what that means you're going to be building the equivalent of the world's largest solar farm every single day for the next several decades. And so if that's like the, the big picture, what we you know I think start thinking about is of course like this insurance overlay. Like 
Uh, we, we now understand that this renewables trend is going to be the single largest infrastructure buildout in the post-World War era. And so what does that mean for us as an industry? And so the, the way I think about it is that nothing gets built without insurance, even renewables. And so it's imperative that our industry, this insurance industry, is able to create products that's tailored for this relatively new technology and relatively new space. Even traditional products like property cover need help. And so I'm sure your listeners are very well aware that, of course, the broader hardening property market, but especially for renewable energy. And so like the most well-known catastrophe in, in our space has been this hailstorm that happened in Midway in Texas. And so this resulted in an $80 million loss associated with a single asset from a single event. And so perhaps unsurprising, this forced a significant reckoning in the market. And so the insurers really need to revisit assumptions and face reality that they really didn't understand how renewable energy assets perform to these uh, extreme weather events. And because they lacked the data, they responded in all of the predictable ways, right? So first, premiums went up. Um, second, there's higher deductibles. Third was injection of sublimits. Fourth was uh, policy terms and conditions, which weren't there previously. And fifth was quota share structures, right? So the, the rule book was <laughs> thrown at this industry um, in, in very predictable ways. And so while this is fine from an insurance industry standpoint, insurance is the missing piece in getting more renewables built. And we think that data is the key. And so while we, just like anyone else, can't predict how climate change will unfold or how these extreme weather events will hit, and we do have the most robust data set and understanding of how these events cause losses and how to mitigate them. And so getting back to your original question, the way perhaps the long-winded way of me saying that climate change is the defining challenge of this generation. And the resulting growth in renewables creates a once-in-a-generation opportunity to grow an entirely new class of premiums that you know, we, we believe to be called climate insurance. And we think to, in order to succeed, you really need to start with the data. That's absolutely fascinating. So uh, in your opinion, renewables is this huge opportunity for insurance. Um, and, and with the right data, there's the scope for enormous growth. But um, I, I, we'll come back to that later, but, um, but both in relation to the data and uh, the opportunity for insurers. But first, um, could you summarize how the solar industry has changed over the last 15 years? The single largest change over the last 15 years is that solar became cost competitive with fossil power, um, even without subsidies. And so when I started in 2007, specifically the Germans and the Japanese were making this industry happening. They're massively subsidizing our space. Um, now, fast forward to today, it's for most of the United States, as well as for vast swaths of Europe, solar stands on its own two feet. It's cheaper than coal in all 50 states here in the United States, and it's cheaper than natural gas in about half of them. So when you say it's cheaper, I mean, what do you mean? So what, what sort of prices were they and what prices are they now? When I first started, a solar farm would cost $5 a watt. And in today's world, it's about less than a dollar a watt. That's for the solar farm itself. And the cost of the solar panel was about $4 a watt for a solar panel, down to about 25 cents now. Wow. Okay. And how many solar power plants are there in America at the moment? Yes, there's about a million solar power plants in America. And so we have this database that's collecting data from about 30%, so about 300,000 of them. And how do you define a solar power plant? I've driven through Southern California with a huge solar farm outside Palm Springs, but presumably but then all, not all that size. So that's uh, absolutely right. And that's the beauty of the technology is that a solar panel is something that you and I can hold in our hands, right? This is a, a very modular technology. And so a solar power plant, I mean, perhaps like on the small end, you'll have a, a rooftop, like a Walmart or even a residential rooftop that has a number of panels and the associated hardware with it, all the way to 
dozens of acres or hundreds of acres of land um, that are using this technology and, of course, just acres of glass sitting in the field. So you're currently receiving data from 300,000 of these uh, solar power plants from across the United States. And that explains why you now hold the, the, the world's largest database for solar and other renewable energy assets. But, but what information precisely do you have? And, uh, and dare I say, it, how have you managed to get the world's largest database in just 10 years? appreciate the description of it to being just 10 years. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like a, a long time to get to this point. So the way we get this data is we offer data and software solutions that help banks and investors to manage their, their investments. And so um, what this means is that we are collecting the same data that the, the investors, like the owners of these assets themselves would have um, with regards to uh, where is the asset, uh, what sort of hardware was using, what panels, what inverters, what, who built it. We also have information on, of course, like, what was the energy output, the, re the revenue generation um, profile of these assets. Okay, and you, you, you collate this data. If people come to you, will you provide data back to them? So you, you receive the data, but to what extent do you give the data out to clients? Uh, precisely. So it's a give-to-get model, uh, just in the same way that Experian was built. Actually, if I have started drawing an insurance analogy, um, it's it also identical to the way that Verisk was built. If you think about Verisk, of course, in its previous, not called Verisk iteration, um, it really was a get-to-get database across a number of competing insurers for which, you know, the question might be, why is this, so why are so many insurers willing to share arguably their most sensitive data, right? The, the claims performance across their entire fleet with a third-party company. And the answer is that, look, there's a very clear understanding that together, these insurers will be stronger off. They'll be better off than if they were to, to function by themselves. And so a very similar dynamic occurs in each one of these large asset classes, simply because the actuarial truth is that the data is very valuable, especially if you're able to accumulate a pan-industry data set. Oh, okay, I get it. So, so just in the same way that insurers share data with a third party on, say, hurricane losses, uh, so that all insurers can then benefit from the resultant research, so all stakeholders in solar farms are giving their data to you so that you can then turn it into something useful for the industry as a whole. Okay, so, so based on the data, what are the main risks to the various stakeholders in solar farms? Um, you already mentioned hail, so physical damage to the actual solar panels must be, must be one such risk. Um, but what other risks are there and how do you model them? Absolutely, and we think about this all the time. So we publish a seminal report every year called the Solar Risk Assessment. And so from, from our client standpoint, the single most important risk is that the average solar farm in America is missing its revenue forecast. It's about by 5 to 10% which doesn't sound like much, but this means that the cash equity returns on the solar farms are about 50% lower than was originally modeled in the base case after all the financing. And you know, the question of course is why? And the sun still comes up every morning, so that's, that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is that most investors are assuming that all hardware will, will work equally perfectly all the time. And uh, from a modeling standpoint, this is where the depth of data is irreplaceable. And this is where we have this insight from across hundreds of hardware manufacturers out there in terms of the actual performance in the field. And that level of actual insight enables us to create and efficiently price innovative products. And if I were to pick a, a second risk investors should be aware of, it's, it's exactly described. It's like this dual impacts of extreme weather and the hardening property market. And you know the impact of the former, extreme weather, obviously causes equipment failure and production loss, which is then impacting returns. But a, a hardening property market amplifies those losses by increasing the operating costs. 
I mean, that's interesting. So, uh, I mean, the, the way you present it, that there are obviously physical risks. So, you know, a solar panel being broken by hail or whatever. But what you're saying is the primary risk is a financial one. It's not necessarily damage to the panel itself or to a solar farm, but it's to the income stream that the investors are expecting. So it's where, for whatever reason, the income stream is not as good as they were anticipating. Is that is that a fair summary? Precisely. And so maybe another way of saying it is that there's physical damage, of course, but there's also non-physical damage that these, these plants experience over time. And either way, it results in cash flow shortfalls for these solar farms, which causes a number of problems downstream. Exactly. And that's a key loss to the stakeholders, but it is exactly the sort of thing that traditionally insurers potentially shy away from because it's, it's a fiscal loss rather than a physical loss. But we'll come on to that in a moment because you have a solution for that. So before we do that, I just want to say KWH Analytics has clearly accumulated all this amazing data, which it could presumably sell at a huge profit to insurers or whoever. At what point did you think as a data collector, did you suddenly think, actually, let's become an insurer ourselves? Because yeah, as far as I'm aware, you don't have any personal background in, in insurance. So it's quite a lateral leap to, to get out of bed one morning and think, let's change from being an analytics company to being an insurance company. Like everyone in this industry, I've stumbled into it. And so uh, funny enough, five years ago, I did exactly that. I, I did approach a number of the global brokers and insurers and asked them if they wanted data licenses. And of course, given our, our background, we thought the same way they licensed data from Virus or Experian, 100% of them turned us down. They said they didn't know what to do with the data, even if they had it. And so it, it does seem like a big leap. But at, at its core, the way I thought about this is that insurance companies really were the world's first data company. Uh, one of my early inspirations for starting this as an insurance business was really looking at the history of uh, Harvard Steam Boiler, where uh, you know, back in the 1800s, steam boilers were the new interesting technology of the time. And back then, they were of course, widespread explosions and a number of losses that were occurring, but no one really understood why. And so, of course, a group of businessmen investigated the, the issue and you know, were doing in inspections on these plants and gathering all this data. And they reasoned that insurance could be used as an incentive for those inspections. And of course, their first insurance product was born um, from that data. And notably, their goal wasn't necessarily to sell insurance. You know, of course, obviously, they helped to be a very significant revenue generator for them, but rather to improve risk mitigation strategies. Um, for that new technology. And so when I think about how that overlays onto our story, it's, it's relatively straightforward. It's, we think that we're combining these two concepts. Like, yes, we are the industry's data aggregator, but we also believe that using this data can enable more accurate and effective coverage of the risks that our clients are facing. And so these two concepts are critical. If renewables are going to grow and decarbonize the planet. And now I think about it, I'd also be remiss if I didn't point out we have some tremendous advisors. So we have uh, Matt Weber, who used to be the former CEO of Swiss Re and Jim McGuire from Aon. Brilliant. Uh, I must confess that I was not expecting to be discussing steam boiler insurance from the 19th century, but I'm very pleased that we are because it was uh, it was an important development in the history of insurance. And and your point is, is a fascinating one, uh, which is the role that insurance plays in enabling new technology to improve in its efficiency and in its risk mitigation or to put another way, perhaps kind of put more accurately, an absence of insurance means that new technologies may not be able to evolve as fast as if there is insurance. And, and that finally leads us kind of neatly to your product, your main product, the solar revenue put. So what is that? 
how does it work and, and what risks does it cover? Absolutely. So we start with the problem for our customer, uh, the owners of these solar farms. And so the, the problem is that the cash flows depend entirely on how many electrons are generated. And because that number is intrinsically uncertain, there's risk. And any reasonable bank or investor will respond to risk by applying haircuts to their forecast. And so the solar revenue put solves that problem by guaranteeing a minimum number of electrons that'll be generated. And the guarantee means that banks get comfortable with the cash flow profile of the asset. And you know, therefore they can lend more and lend more cheaply to that. Just to give you a sense of numbers, for every dollar that our clients spend on premium, they'll usually get between five to seven dollars back from the bank. And so the, the policy pays for itself that way. And so it, of course we've been able to secure these capacity partners from several insurance, including Swiss Re. And we've also now at this point of expanding beyond North America for the first time here. But, you know, when I think about the underlying risk itself, like the two factors that influence the quality uh, the quantity of power produced from a solar power plant is really two things, right? So it's irradiance. So it's the amount of sunshine multiplied by the system quality, you know, the ability of this hardware to actually produce electricity. And so while the amount of sunlight is generally quite stable, of course, the system quality piece can vary quite significantly. And that's where we have this unique insights because we have all this operating data through which we can understand which systems perform better than others and price it accordingly. And so that's how the solar revenue put all comes together. And we, you know, we do see how you know, the system quality data also helps us to understand how extreme weather events impact these solar farms. And so our second product, this newly launched property product, uh, draws upon those exact same insights on system quality to enable us to ensure risk at an appropriate price point. What are the triggers for payment? You say it, it, the insurance is for a certain number of electrons generated. Is it, if it goes below a certain level, is, is there just an automatic payment or does there have to be a claim made or how is it done? What, what is the actual trigger for payment? The short answer and then the longer answer. The short answer is that the product is largely parametric. And the, what we are doing, unsurprisingly, as a software and data company, is that for every solar farm or portfolio of solar farms we insure, we are plugging in our software and data products into that plant. So we're collecting data on, on a real-time basis. And as a result, when there is a, a loss event that's occurred, you know, we've, it is an insurance policy, so there are some exclusions. However, we are largely able to ascertain the volume of claim and, of course, like the, the veracity of claims very quickly. So let's say that I own a solar farm somewhere. Um, and let's say that there's no sun for a couple of days and therefore the number of electrons generated dips below the average. I mean, a couple of days surely isn't a long enough period to, to trigger a payment. Presumably it has to be, you know, more like what, a month, six months. But what, what sort of period is needed to trigger a payment? So uh, oftentimes the product is either structured to be a quarterly protection or, or an annual protection. And what makes this product unique in the insurance world in particular is that not only is it for relatively new technology, but also we offer um, non-cancelable coverage for a 10 or 20 year period. And so from that basis, you'd ask yourself the question, of course, coming from more from a Lloyd standpoint as well, that's a, a very long time to be on, on the risk for something that's a relatively new technology. Um, it's also true that from our client standpoint, like these solar power plants have useful lives that extend 35 to 40 years. So from our client standpoint, this coverage is still not exactly sufficient you know, relative to the, the forecasted cash flows are, are expected to receive from them. I'm not an underwriter myself, but I, I can imagine lots of people listening to this thinking, this is, this is a license to lose money as an insurer. It's effectively a guarantee of income stream. And I think most insurers are concerned about this, this lack of data, that effectively you're, you're insuring blind. You don't have that because you have all the data. 
So, I mean, how successful is this product? Dare I ask what your, your loss ratios are? Sure. And uh, well, um, yeah, to your point, the, the proof is in the pudding. And our loss ratios are, I, I would describe as favorable. They're approximately 20%. And this is not just off the last year. We've been doing this for five years now. And, and to your point, it's, it really comes down to the data. I mean, without the data, we'd be shooting in the dark. But with the data, we can deliver innovation that's a win-win for everyone. Maybe one other point I would make is that, especially as we're designing the product, a question that, that emerges, is this financial guarantee, right? Is this going to be a guarantee on, on like the default of the product? And what we've discovered through that process is that because this is guaranteed electrons, electrons is not revenue. There's obviously, a very strong correlation to it, but you still need someone to pay for the electrons. I mean, it's also there's operating expenses. So in that way, it's, it's not a financial guarantee. Okay, that's really helpful. And, and how did you, I mean, you mentioned that you've been speaking with Swiss Re and Aon. So how did you create the product? So you, you presumably had an idea that, you know, you have loads of data and actually you think this could turn into an insurance product. But how did you develop the idea into a final product? The, the idea really comes from two things. Like one is that, as you know, for Fred or Forrest, I'm a solar guy. <laughs> so uh, having a very close ear to our customers' needs, and particularly the fact that these, when you think about solar farm, uh, you're, you're paying for 40 years of electricity generation, but you're paying for it on day one, right? There's no ongoing fuel costs for these plants. And so it's a very capital intensive business that all of us in solar and wind are in. And as a result, the ability to finance that is extremely important. So that's, that's the first piece. And the second is really from the data that we saw that, yes, there are solar farms that are underperforming. In fact, it's pointed out, actually most of them are underperforming, but not all of them underperform equally. And in fact, that there are discrete data points that can be used to underwrite that risk and to, to find the right solar power plants that, that in fact can be effectively insured. So it's between these two things that we're able to combine them together and then, of course, create that first product. As with any innovation, it's, again, the first deal done was the hardest. But at this point now, the solar revenue put covers more than $3 billion worth of solar power plants in the United States. And uh, more than 30 banks have underwritten loans that value this product. And it ranges from you know, Citigroup to HSBC to, to Stockgen. And we've also had the rating agencies now that have um, valued the product by increasing their rating up one or two notches. So this product has entered the mainstream for this relatively new asset class. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's utterly fascinating and, and incredible. So I, mean, I said right at the outset that this episode was going to be about two things, how data can drive innovative insurance products and how those innovative insurance products can positively aid the transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. The first of those effectively is what we've been discussing so far, because what you are suggesting, kind of the, the, this, this product that the solar revenue put, would have been impossible without the data. No one would have dared do it. Is, is, is that right? Or is that me not quite understanding it? So that, that's exactly right. It's that for an outsider, or for someone who's not deeply immersed in the data, there's a lot of uncertainties here. I mean, uh, literally a bank asked me uh, several years ago, what happens if squirrels bite through these wires? which you know, they had heard once had, had happened. Right? The number of risks that could occur theoretically to a solar farm is innumerable. But in order to really get a, a lender comfortable, right, and they're going to be the ones who are putting out hundreds of millions of dollars in day one with the expectation of certainty of cash flow, in order to get them comfortable, you need to be able to construct an insurance policy that actually does what you say you're going to do. So what that's meant for us is we need to create an all-risk policy. Right? And so that we're covering off even if a squirrel were to bite through a number of wires. And these are the, the sorts of 
policy design considerations that are very difficult for someone without the data to feel comfortable in doing. So, yeah, I, I mean, congratulations on, on coming up with a product. I say that, that there's, uh, you know, solar farms have this risk of, of, you know, they need investment. The investors need comfort. It's a product, an insurance product, which provides comfort to those investors and therefore allows solar farms to develop. And therefore, we hopefully head towards net zero, or at least, you know, do a bit of heading towards net zero. But I mean, what growth do you anticipate for solar and for solar insurance in the coming years? Because... As I understand it, at the moment, only 3.4% of power in the US is generated by solar. It's uh, 6% in the EU and 4% in the UK. So the UK is very similar to America. So what sort of percentage would you expect that to become by 2050, say? When I look at these numbers, I, the, what, I, what I hear is... Uh, the, the amount of headroom that this industry has is massive, especially now that it's become so cheap and has continued to gotten cheaper. I'll share a quick story is that when I, you know, back to my analyst days since 15 years ago, uh, the very first project I had at McKinsey was to create a forecast model. Like how much solar is there going to be in 2020? And the uh, number I came up with was 200 gigawatts of solar, which at the time was considered extremely aggressive. It turns out that this industry uh, passed the 200 gigawatt mark in 2017 and is with any exponential curve means that by 2020, uh, we ended up with 800 gigawatts. And so um, it, it's entirely true that this industry is still a tiny speck relative to the rest of the power market. Um, but it's also true that the industry has beat all growth forecasts, you know, really driven by that underlying cost trend. And this happened before the ESG wave. And so if we're going to be deploying the amount of solar and wind that this world needs to deploy and to get to that net zero category, you know, I think it's fair to say that there's going to be a number of policy tailwinds that will be supporting this market as it grows. So our, our view is that this is a new category of climate insurance. And it looks a lot like cyber in the sense that it took the insurance market to appreciate the fact that there is this underlying need. But once the market appreciates it, you know, of course, the, the tremendous growth follows. I know that you'd be looking to expand beyond solar as well. So, so what other kind of forms of renewable energy are you thinking about and developing products for? So we, we now have a wind revenue put, unsurprisingly, perhaps going from solar to wind to not a huge jump, um, but also by having this property product, which is providing that all-risk coverage against physical damage for, for wind farms as well as battery farms, in addition to solar farms. Brilliant. Well, good luck to that. The, uh, the world needs it, so I, I wish you well with that. And as a general question, and I appreciate that your roots are in analysis as an analyst, and you sort of developed into an insurer, promoted to an insurer, maybe we put it that way. Do you believe that insurance has a role to play in the transition to net zero? Every single renewable project needs insurance to get built. And insurance, especially in a market where a number of the incumbent insurers have pulled back and re-underwriting, insurance has become the bottleneck in getting a lot of these products built nowadays. You know, when I think about what the insurance industry as a whole is doing is I look at it as two forces pulling in different directions. So on one hand, and this is where 99% of the insurance industry is today, is very focused on fossil fuels. We should be insuring less of this. We should be investing in less of this, right? There's a, a very much of a negative, how do we shrink our business perspective? Um, there's only a, a handful that, that I could think of, you know, Swiss Re, of course, being one of them, where they're thinking about this as from the flip side. It's like, look, this is, yes, there's a, an old world that is disappearing rapidly before our eyes. But there's a new one that's getting born also right before our eyes. And there's a tremendous opportunity here 
to grow our businesses together. Uh, and that's, of course, really the role that we play as an MJ. That we, we have the ability to provide these services to these insurers that don't necessarily have that specialized data or industry knowledge to participate in this the market. And we're, we're very excited to work with more partners we believe are going to understand that look at 99% of where the, the industry headspace is today is going to eventually rotate to 99% focused on, on the growth opportunity. You mentioned there that you're an MGA. And do you think that this is you know, a huge opportunity for MGAs simply because they are more nimble and because they can use data in a different way and are maybe prepared to take a few more risks than some of the larger insurers? I think that there's going to be a very healthy symbiotic relationship between MGAs and insurers. And of course, yeah, this is it, the way I see it is that MGAs are, of course, we are smaller. We oftentimes have um, CTOs that are, are very close to the data and are very able to build new infrastructure without worrying about legacy technical debt. So we have a lot of strengths. Um, but of course, the, the the incumbent insurers also bring a lot of strength as well. Like they they oftentimes will will have the, the understanding of practices and, and regulatory structure. Of course, having like the capital that's been accumulated, you know, thanks to decades of of success as a, as a business. So I, th- I think that uh, yes, of course, MGAs will play a very important role because of the fact that when you have things like cyber or climate insurance, right? Like these are relatively new risks for which you know there are firms that are going to be closer to the risk, like ourselves, and be able to generate that data set that then enables the innovation to occur. Um, but certainly, it would not be possible without the partnerships of, with the insurer. And finally, Richard, we've, you'd be pleased to hear we've we've hit the end now. But what word of wisdom from your experience of insurance so far? What word of wisdom would you give to someone who's thinking about, I don't know, changing from being an analyst to being kind of involved with insurance? What, what, what sort of lesson have you learned so far in your journey? <laughs> well, uh, w- one is that you won't find a more self-deprecating group of people out there. I mean, everyone almost sheepishly admits that they fell into this industry, which I, I find uh, charming. Uh, maybe the second, though, is that it's, it's a lot more interesting than people think. And I think this is why, of course, this industry is, has attracted the level of talent that it has. Richard, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely wonderful. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.